This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of torture and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. James Taggart had been abducted in the street by Charlie Richardson three months ago. He owed money to someone who in turn owed a member of Richardson's gang. Guilt by association had earned Taggart a brutal beating and hours of heinous torture by electrocution. When he was released, Taggart's head had ballooned to twice its size. His eyes were swollen shut and lash marks scarred his back. But despite this ruthless treatment for three months now, Taggart had stayed silent. After all, so many of the cops were corrupt and might immediately report back to Charlie. So he lay low, avoiding anywhere he might run into his torturers. Until one balmy day in October of 1965, Taggart got up the courage to go out in public. He walked through the streets, attempting to find comfort in the fresh air, but was startled when a car pulled up slowly beside him. Taggart turned to see the face in the driver's seat and was met with the glistening, soulless eyes of Charlie Richardson. Without pausing to think, he fled as fast as he could. He had had enough. He hated Charlie and the vicious fear he instilled. But he knew there was one man who would listen to him. One last, honest detective. Taggart ran to his car and pressed hard on the gas, his white knuckles gripping the wheel. He was going to Hertfordshire, and he was going to tell Gerald MacArthur everything. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify 
or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Last week, we introduced you to notorious gentleman gangster Charlie Richardson and explored his rise from a petty thief to one of London's most feared businessmen. This week, we'll cover the greed, murder and betrayal that led to his downfall. In the early 1960s, Charlie Richardson was at his peak. He had escaped the post-war poverty-stricken streets he was born into by running a criminal empire with his brother, Eddie. He and Eddie owned six scrapyards, and Charlie was now working in the business of long-firm fraud, setting up fraudulent companies to purchase and resell wholesale goods. The men in the Richardson gang admired Charlie and his keen eye for business. It allowed him to take care of them financially, and for that, they were loyal but they enjoyed the leeway Charlie gave them for violence, too. The gang made a name for itself by knocking around those who owed Charlie money or doubted their business practices. But these weren't just the usual back-alley beatings. Instead, the gang held mock trials where they would subject the plaintiffs they found guilty to grievous torture. A game, but a terrifying one. The group came to be known as the torture gang for this unconventional violence. They were feared by all of South London, even by the criminal elements that were also envious of them. For Charlie, unlike his enemies, life was comfortable and easy. In 1955, he had married a longtime sweetheart, Margaret, and over the course of seven years of marriage, they had five children, Charlie loved having kids and doted on them. Margaret, however, received less doting treatment. Charlie was less than loyal to her. The monotony of marriage just didn't suit him. In 1962, a fed-up Margaret left Charlie after she found out he had been having an affair with a woman named Jean Goodman. But Charlie didn't mind much. As far as he was concerned, it was all for the best. He didn't need Margaret. All he really wanted were the children. So he took them, knowing Margaret couldn't stop him, and moved in with his girlfriend, Jean. Jean would take over as Charlie's new wife, organizing his scrapyard businesses and taking care of his five children. And Charlie would make sure she was financially comfortable in return. The pleasant life of the man on top resumed the occasional torture session to keep South London's criminals in line, and a nice cozy dinner with his woman and his kids at night, or some debauchery in the club, as the night would have it. The clubs were closer to Charlie's business than ever. Charlie's brother Eddie had gone into business with Frankie Fraser, the Richardson's infamous and brutal right-hand man. Together, the pair began to sell fruit machines, better known as slot machines, to the London nightclubs. But there was one problem. The Cray brothers, a rival gang, dealt in the same business. The Crays had had multiple violent scuffles with the Richardson gang, and thus far, 
had apprehensively accepted a mild truce. But now, the Richardson Empire was swallowing up one of their only business ventures. In order for Eddie and Frankie to put one of their machines in a club, they had to get rid of somebody else's, typically those of the craze. The task wasn't difficult. Eddie and Frankie merely promised the owner of the club a greater percentage of the profits than the craze offered. Additionally, the owners knew their clubs were safer under the watch of the Richardsons. If Frankie and Eddie had a machine in the club, other gangs would leave them alone. The more successful Frankie and Eddie became, the more the craze envied them. A war was brewing. But Charlie was worried about Eddie and Frankie for a different reason. A senior police officer had made a call to Charlie. It seemed Eddie had stopped paying the police. He had asserted that his current practices were legitimate and that there was no need to pay cops off for legal business. It was true. Eddie's activities were legal. But Charlie knew the benefit of paying off the cops long-term, regardless of what business the Richardsons were into. He bribed the cop himself and had a row with Eddie. The payoffs were a code, and Charlie knew that once the cops were onto you for illegal dealings, they didn't care much what you did legally. He shouted at Eddie for his idiocy. But this hiccup aside, Charlie was generally happy that Eddie and Frankie had found a business of their own. He'd just have to keep an eye on them to make sure they didn't make any more blunders. Charlie, meanwhile, was still deep in the scrap metal and wholesale businesses and was making money hand over fist. He was more than financially comfortable and business was nearly effortless. Still, scrap metal was a post-war occupation for the most part, and the boom was nearly over. Charlie knew soon he would see a steady decline as London moved further and further away from the rubble of World War II, and he wanted to stay ahead of the game. It was as if by divine intervention that Richard Aubrey appeared in Charlie's office. Aubrey was a round little Welshman whose diet consisted of alcohol, peanuts, and ham sandwiches. He was a salesman with a business proposition, and he'd been told by everyone in London that Charlie Richardson was the man to go to with all such propositions. Now, he was here to offer Charlie the opportunity of a lifetime. Aubrey was in mining. Back in Wales, he had noticed the lower classes searching slag heaps or man-made hills constructed from the coal mine waste. They were rummaging for remnants of black gold, coal. Aubrey had bought a few slag heaps himself and gotten into a nice little business. He would bleed one dry, then use the profit to acquire another. But now he had a cash flow problem and had come to Charlie for a partnership on his next acquisition. Charlie had always been interested in mining. As someone who dealt mostly in scrap metals, he was fascinated by the idea that one could make a living digging up dirty rubble from the ground. Plus, Aubrey had a bulldozer and a talent for sales pitches. But still, the price of coal was waning. It had fallen by more than half in the past year. Charlie shook his head. 
But Aubrey was smart enough to know he couldn't pass up the chance to form a business relationship with the great Charlie Richardson. So he tried a new angle. He had gone to South Africa just six months prior, he explained. He spun tales of the semi-precious stones one could find just laying on the ground. Charlie was tempted. The thought of South African land ablaze with diamonds and opals was winning him over in a way Cole simply couldn't. Aubrey saw the interest and continued eagerly. South Africa was slow in seizing opportunities for business. Aubrey scoffed, quote, they're too busy going to church and torturing colored people to notice. Charlie, ever the businessman, was turning the information over in his mind. Was South Africa his next stop? Could he make more? That's when Aubrey dropped his last tantalizing piece of information. He knew someone who had four million acres of land in Namakwaland, dripping with precious stones. His name was Tom Waldeck. Waldeck was a member of the Bruderbond, a South African version of Freemasons. The Bruderbond afforded Waldeck a variety of connections, and like Charlie, he had been able to bribe a few government officials to keep his mining ventures afloat. But now, Tom needed cash. He wanted to offload some of his acres for a profit. On his last trip to South Africa, Audrey had told Waldeck he would buy some of his land and had acquired mining rights. But he had to pay the government tax on those rights and register the land in his name, something that, at the moment, Aubrey couldn't afford. Charlie was suspicious of the story. Why couldn't Waldeck find any backers if he was sitting on literal diamond mines? But Aubrey reassured him not everyone knew a worthwhile risk when he saw it, not like Charlie. Charlie, meanwhile, knew that without risk, there was little reward. It would be the biggest deal of Charlie's life, a deal involving strangers in a foreign country, strangers who didn't know his reputation. And Charlie hadn't yet decided that Aubrey was trustworthy. He talked a good talk, but something about the way he presented himself made Charlie doubt him. Still, Charlie had dealt with men like this before, and the opportunity seemed too good to pass up. He'd just have to run the deal the Charlie Richardson way. He would use Richard Aubrey, befriend his contacts, take control of his land, and then he'd abandon the little man. All before Aubrey had a chance to cheat him. Up next, Charlie sets off on his new scheme. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into.
And now, back to our story. It was 1964, and 30-year-old Charlie Richardson had just made a deal that was going to take South Africa by storm. On August 24th, Charlie left his five children under the care of his mother, and he, his girlfriend Jean, and his new business partner Richard Aubrey flew from Heathrow Airport to Johannesburg to suss out the deal. In South Africa, Charlie found he didn't have to work nearly as hard for respect as he had to in London. All he needed here was the white color of his skin, and he would be treated like royalty. Plus, he was being escorted around by Richard Aubrey, who was as well-connected as he'd promised. Amongst Aubrey's associates was the storied Tom Waldeck. Waldeck's mining rights, Charlie quickly learned, only lasted a year. But by bribing a powerful government official, he would be allowed to renew the rights each year after. Still, Waldeck was having a bit of trouble with his mining venture. His business partners thus far had wanted in on future rewards, but made little effort in helping him here and now. Waldeck was exhausted handling the mining affairs on his own. That didn't bother Charlie at all. He knew how to handle exhausted men. He could bring them comfort by taking organizational control of their ventures. For a price, of course. He wanted half of the mine's profit in return for his help. It was a tough offer, but a resigned Waldeck agreed to the plan. He even agreed to Charlie's stipulation that the deal would only be finalized after he was able to survey the land. A few days later, Charlie, Waldeck, and Aubrey set out for Namakwaland. It was a two-day drive, hot and exhausting, but Charlie kept his eye on the prize. And once they arrived at Waldeck's land, he saw that prize instantly. Aubrey surveyed the ground for a few minutes, then knelt down to pick something up. In his hand was a beautiful opal. Charlie grabbed at the opal, but Waldeck took it from Aubrey and put it in his pocket. The opals were only for Charlie once he became an official partner. It was a tantalizing show, but unbeknownst to Charlie, it was all part of Aubrey's plan. He had carried the opal with him in his pocket, eager for Charlie to throw his money at the business deal. He knew Charlie's greed would win out over his compunctions once he saw some precious stones and started thinking about their value. Now, Aubrey would stick the contract. He grabbed a shovel and, like a magician, asked Charlie to pick a place, any place in the ground, and dig. Charlie pointed to a bush 50 yards away. Within moments, the shovel hit something hard. Aubrey brushed away the dirt and grime, revealing a glossy black mineral. Waldeck smiled. It's perlite, Charlie. People would kill to get their hands on such a mineral. Perlite was strong, light, and easy to build with, Waldeck explained, and it was worth far more than the opal that Waldeck had in his pocket. Just as Aubrey had hoped, Charlie's greed took hold. He was sold. Waldeck and Aubrey had themselves a deal. Charlie, meanwhile, returned to South London. He was eager to settle his affairs. Then he would make the move to South Africa with his family and finally relax after a life of toiling away in London's streets. 
he'd spend his days lounging in the sun, effortlessly accumulating more money mining beautiful black stones. But getting there would take some time. And while he was still in London, Charlie wasn't about to leave his newfound business partners unattended. He sent over two of his best men, Jimmy Collins and John Bradbury, to keep an eye on the blossoming venture for the time being. This was a mistake. Bradbury would cause Charlie quite a bit of unwanted trouble. Bradbury loved attention, especially from women. Part of the reason he enjoyed being one of Charlie's loyal gang was the fame and the accolades it earned him. But in South Africa, Bradbury was barely known. He'd have to fix that. And he had just the plan. London newspapers had just been bombarded with the escape of Charles Wilson, the great train robber. And in an attempt to impress the women of Johannesburg, Bradbury took on a new alias. It was he who had robbed the trains. He was the great escapist, Charles Wilson. Soon, a South African newspaper had printed the exclusive news that Charles Wilson was cavorting around Johannesburg alive and well. When Waldeck saw this, he was furious. Waldeck and Charlie had been working for the past few months trying to negotiate with companies that could help them mine the perlite, and a train robber associate would surely kill their negotiations. Waldeck had to fire him. Charlie agreed without spending much time considering how Bradbury might react. After all, his mind was on other things. He was back in London, churning over the perlite negotiations. He was sifting through a few problems. Aubrey was demanding a portion of the profits. After all, he had been a consultant on the deal, facilitating the whole thing. But Charlie wanted to cut him out, as he'd planned since the beginning. Then there were Waldeck's other business partners who had bought into the deal, but only for the future rewards. They hadn't done the same work Charlie had. They didn't deserve the profit. Luckily, Waldeck had given Charlie all the information he needed to sever the other men from the deal. Every year, Waldeck's land had to be repegged, a process through which an owner re-establishes the boundaries of his property. Waldeck's business partners and Richard Aubrey knew nothing about this practice, or even that it had to be done. But it was a crucial task. If the land wasn't repegged, ownership rights to the land were considered lapsed, and it would be up for grabs for whoever discovered it next. So Charlie came up with a devious plan. He and Waldeck just needed to let the repegging lapse. The land would then belong to nobody, and Charlie and Waldeck could claim discoverer's rights. Then they'd repeg the land under their own company name. Waldeck's business partners, unaware of the repegging process, would be split off from the deal, and he and Charlie could split the profit 50-50. Waldeck was impressed by the plan and the profits it promised. He agreed. Charlie, meanwhile, was delighted and confident. This kind of fraud was his bread and butter. He'd grown up on it, literally, since he was a child peddling stolen scrap metal. He promised he'd meet Waldeck in Johannesburg in a few short weeks to put the plan into action. 
he made good on that promise, returning to Johannesburg to sort out contracts and company agreements. He kept busy attracting future customers with the promise of Perlite, as well as setting up meetings with eager clients left and right. It was hard work, but he did it with the knowledge that once all the deals were closed, the mining would begin and he could sit back and watch as his empire amassed more riches. It was taking a while, and Charlie had seen no profit thus far after investing tens of thousands of pounds. He had already spent much of his own money hiring workers and buying bulldozers to mine Waldeck's land. But Charlie reassured himself. Such massive business deals needed to be handled with patience. Still, patience wouldn't solve all of Charlie's problems. On June 29, 1964, Tom Waldeck awoke to a knock at his door. He answered it to find John Bradbury, the man Charlie had previously fired, and another man he didn't know, Harry Prince. Prince was aiming a gun directly at him. He fired nine shots into Waldeck's stomach. Waldeck sank to the ground and collapsed in a bloody heap, dead. The fallout was swift. Bradbury and Prince fled and went into hiding. Police searched for evidence, but could find no suspect to tie to the murder. The rumor mill, meanwhile, had its own ideas. Whispers that Charlie had been responsible for Waldeck's murder flew across South Africa. Charlie, for his part, was steadfast that he had nothing to do with the death. He proposed a different story for Waldeck's sudden murder. Bradbury was a drunk. He'd been sleeping with Waldeck's wife, and feeling betrayed by Charlie firing him, he had taken it upon himself to ruin Charlie's empire and frame him in the process. The police continued to stumble as they looked for hard evidence, one way or another. Charlie wasn't in danger of arrest, for now. But regardless, he was not happy with the debacle. He needed to clean up the mess and fast. Papers in London were already getting hold of the story. The great Charlie Richardson of the infamous Richardson gang had killed a man in South Africa. The news would make Londoners squeal with excitement. On top of that, Waldeck's death provided Charlie yet another problem. All of his assets for the new business venture were tied up with Waldeck. Everything was under their joint names. But Waldeck was the one who had South African government officials in his pocket. Without him, Charlie was just a scrapyard businessman from London. Charlie needed to regain control. But how? For almost a year and a half, he made every effort to get the mining business up and running again. In late February of 1966, he finally began to see some progress. A Hungarian engineering company began to extract the perlite, and soon other companies wanted to meet with Charlie to discuss supplies of the precious stone. Charlie was beginning to salvage some control, and he was hopeful. He could see the light at the end of the tunnel. He was going to get out. But unbeknownst to him, more trouble had been brewing in London. Charlie's brother Eddie and his right-hand man Frankie had made headway with their fruit machine business. It was booming. 
New nightclub Mr. Smith's was one of the many locations that requested they install the slot machines at their spot. Eddie and Frankie, of course, obliged. But a new set of gangster brothers, the Haywards, had their eye on the club, and they refused to let Eddie and Frankie take over so easily. When Eddie and Frankie caught wind of this, they decided to grab a few of their men and handle the situation before it became a situation. On March 7, 1966, when Mr. Smith's had closed for the night, Eddie, Frankie, and a few others from the Richardson gang faced the Hayward brothers and their men. They expected a quick scuffle where they'd put the Hayward brothers in their place. But a spewing of pellets from a sawed-off shotgun changed everything. No one knew who had fired the gun, but Frankie had been shot in the leg and Eddie in the butt. Two more Richardson men had been badly wounded, and another man from the rival firm Dickie Hart lay dying on the ground. Eddie and Frankie were taken to the hospital, where they were promptly met by the police. Frankie was arrested for murder, and Eddie was charged as his accomplice, although the police struggled to find concrete evidence. But after all, Eddie had stopped paying off police officers, and the law had no incentive to let the scuffle slide. Less than a week later, Charlie got news of Eddie and Frankie's arrest from the papers. And even in the midst of his own crusade for mining success, this changed everything. Charlie loved his brother and had a deep bond with Frankie as well. He couldn't sit idly by as the two men rotted away in prison. He would have to head back to London to get them out of trouble. But Charlie wasn't the only one who was interested in news of the Mr. Smith's shootout. Ronnie Cray knew Charlie would be preoccupied with Eddie's and Frankie's situation. That meant Charlie himself, along with four top men from the Richardson gang, were now indisposed. Just 16 hours after the shootout at Mr. Smith's, on March 8th, Ronnie decided it was the perfect time for the Cray brothers to make their next move. Coming up, Ronnie Cray throws a cog in Charlie's plans, and the Richardson's empire starts to crumble. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. 
It was March of 1966. Four Richardson gang men had been wounded during a fray at Mr. Smith's nightclub, and a 32-year-old Charlie Richardson was busy trying to keep them out of jail. Ronnie Cray, meanwhile, saw an opportunity that was too easy not to take. The strongest man left standing in the Richardson gang was now George Cornell, and in Ronnie's eyes, he was the only man that remained in his way. Cornell was a loyal friend of Charlie's and had fought with Ronnie more than a few times before. Most recently, he had publicly defamed Ronnie, calling him a fat puff for his suspected sexual preferences. That was the only reminder Ronnie needed to load a gun and visit George Cornell at the Blind Beggar pub. George was sitting with a friend when Ronnie walked in, pointing a gun at his head. Ronnie fired. And George gave Ronnie one final taunting smile as he fell to the ground, bleeding to death. When Charlie heard of his friend's murder, he was upset, but also confused. Where had all these guns suddenly come from? In the two years he had spent in South Africa, it seemed that guns had become increasingly popular. Charlie was used to doing business the old way, a few good beatings and some light or occasionally heavy torture. But guns? This was a new world for an old gangster. Now anyone with a few quid could buy a gun and become a well-respected, feared thug overnight. One single shot to the head and Charlie could be dead. That felt too dangerous. Charlie wanted nothing to do with this new amateur world of criminal warfare. The fun was gone. He was more sure than ever the mines would be his salvation. He would sort out the situation with Eddie and Frankie, make sure they weren't locked away, and then return to South Africa to build a completely, or mostly, legitimate empire. But the cracks in the armor of the Richardson gang had started to show. And as the members of the gang dwindled, a few victims of their brutal torture finally felt like it was the perfect time to come forward with their stories. The London police were suddenly very willing to listen. They were less connected to Charlie after his absence in South Africa, and they were starting to see the cracks in the Richardson's power just as much as the gang's victims. They even offered to keep victim testimony anonymous to encourage as many people as possible to come speak with them. But the story was too explosive to keep under wraps entirely. It started to leak into the press, gripping Londoners with horror and fear at what the torture gang was capable of. Charlie would have seen these articles, but he had no idea just how serious the law was about pursuing them. Soon, detectives from Scotland Yard became involved, searching for any hard evidence to prove the shocking tales told by the victims. They needed an insider, someone who could give them every last detail of Charlie's indiscretions, and they knew exactly where to find one. In April of 1966, John Bradbury was arrested for the murder of Tom Waldeck and sentenced to death. In a last-ditch attempt to save himself, Bradbury agreed to meet with detectives from Scotland Yard and give a statement outlining Charlie's role in the gruesome murder. 
He asserted that he had been bribed to kill Waldeck by Charlie himself. Charlie had been putting in work on the mining venture, but hadn't seen any profit and was concerned he was being conned. But that wasn't all Bradbury told the police. He also gave full details of the torture, corruption, bribery and fraud that he had seen Charlie carry out in South London for decades. Charlie, meanwhile, felt the chaos swirling around him, but he was too busy to pay attention to rumors and gossip. He focused on what he knew, what he could control, his plans to keep his brother and his friend out of jail. On June 28, 1966, Eddie and Frankie Fraser went on trial for the Mr. Smith's shootout, and Charlie went to talk to the witnesses. The trial collapsed and a retrial was ordered. But the court recognized that there was no guarantee the witnesses and lawyers involved in the retrial wouldn't be paid off. Charlie's power might be slipping, but he still had influence in South London. But not so much in East London and the small town of Hertfordshire. As far as the court knew, the cops there hadn't ever been involved with the bribes of the Richardson gang. Plus, Hertfordshire's assistant chief constable, Gerald MacArthur, had a special interest in Charlie Richardson. A man named James Taggart had frantically told him of a mock trial he had been forced to take part in just six months prior. MacArthur had been horrified, but he hadn't had enough evidence to launch a real investigation against Charlie. Now, things were changing. MacArthur was brought in to guarantee there would be no foul play during the retrial. Charlie, meanwhile, was alarmed about the retrial. This wouldn't have happened at all in the old days. He was even more alarmed when he wasn't able to sway the court. Not under MacArthur's watch. The retrial in 1966 earned both Frankie and Eddie five years in jail. In the meantime, another detective, Tommy Butler, nicknamed the Thief Catcher, was also busying himself with the allegations made against Charlie and his gang. Butler had become famous for putting away train robbers and other organized crime members, and he wasn't going to stop before he had his hands on Charlie Richardson. But Charlie still had a few people in his pocket and a few schemes to pull. When he got word of Butler's investigation, he went straight to the Houses of Parliament and a prominent member he knew well to accuse Butler of corruption. It was a classic Richardson fraud, and a few years before might have done wonders. But by 1966, Charlie's once loyal contacts no longer felt protected by his slowly crumbling empire. The member of parliament told the attorney general, who immediately alerted Tommy Butler. Charlie would not escape this one. July 30th, 1966 was the day of the World Cup final, but Charlie would remember it for something far different. In the early hours of the morning, he heard the latch of the door unlock downstairs and the muffled whispers of policemen raiding his home. It seemed that while Charlie had been preoccupied with Eddie and Frankie, the police had been preoccupied with him. Charlie, unaware of, or in denial, about how much the law had assembled against him, assumed it was nothing worth getting out of bed for. 
he could probably get off for a couple thousand pounds. It would be pointless to run, so instead, he pretended to sleep. The men woke Charlie from his faux slumber, and Gerald MacArthur, along with Tommy Butler, placed him under arrest. He asked if he could have a quick shave, telling them he wanted to look his best for his arrest. They obliged, and then handcuffed Charlie, carting him off to sit in a police cell awaiting his fate. That same day, police arrested the remaining members of the Richardson gang in a series of raids that occurred throughout London. The torture trial of April 1967 would be the end of the Richardson gang, and for Charlie, the end of an era. As the men in the Richardson gang were collected and thrown behind bars, more and more victims from their past found the courage to come forward. They had tales of Frankie pulling out teeth with a set of gold pliers, crushing their molars, or being beaten almost to death by Eddie. They recalled in explicit detail Charlie stabbing them in the feet, nailing them to the ground, and torturing them by means of electrocution. He wasn't the businessman he appeared. He was a cruel, violent criminal who'd stop at nothing to satisfy his greed and maintain his power. The tales went on, and the spectators of the trial drank in every horrifying word, eager to see the Richardson gang sentenced for their crimes. It was London's first detailed look at the world of organized crime. The defense brought out evidence similar to the items that had been used to torture the men. The little black box that delivered electric shocks, a broomstick that might have been used to beat people. Charlie, appalled and defiant, dismissed it all. They had nothing concrete on him or his men aside from the words of the witnesses. And these men were lying. But Charlie didn't have a chance. His power had always been the envy of his enemies. It was only their fear of his retribution that had kept him safe. Now, handcuffed and sitting in front of the judge, he was powerless. There was nothing menacing about him. And the men who hated him wasted no time telling the jury why he deserved to sit in a cell for the rest of his life. In April of 1967, Charlie, Eddie, and Frankie received a guilty verdict. Frankie Fraser got 10 years in prison for two counts of grievous bodily harm and demanding money with menaces. Eddie received 10 years for one count of grievous bodily harm and two counts of assault causing bodily harm. Both men would have their sentences added on to the five years they had already received for the fray at Mr. Smith's. Charlie's sentence as gang leader was, of course, worse. The judge charged Charlie with four counts of grievous bodily harm, two counts of assault causing bodily harm, one of robbery with violence, and two charges of demanding money with menaces. He would serve 25 years in prison for his crimes. After the sentencing, the judge made a statement branding Charlie as the vicious and sadistic leader of one of the most dangerous gangs he had ever heard of. Many would speculate in the coming years just how much of the brutal torture tales were true. People had feared Charlie for years, but many also adored him. 
He was a loyal friend, a good father, and a talented businessman. He had a knack for understanding people. Those who were in prison with Charlie often spoke of how much they enjoyed his company. He was funny and well-read, despite his lack of education, and he could have intelligent conversations, philosophizing for hours. Most were shocked that this was the same man who had broken people's bones, bloodying their bodies with knives and beatings. Was it possible that, as Charlie claimed, he was the victim of jealous enemies and merely a pawn of the papers that thrived on stories of terror? Possible, but unlikely. There were so many witnesses at the torture trials, all spinning the same appalling tales. Charlie was also quick to point out that violence may have granted him his success, but what of the corrupt policemen who pocketed his bribes, allowing him to grow more and more powerful? What made him different from the cops he had paid off? There, he made a good point. The law had been an essential participant in Charlie's reign of terror. But in the end, they got out of the affair without any consequences. Charlie eventually got out of it too. In July of 1984, after serving 17 years in multiple prisons, he was released. After his release, Charlie went back to his family and got back to work. He continued his dealings in scrapyards and selling secondhand cars, this time, as far as the law could tell, legitimately. He gave multiple interviews in his old age, always denying the allegations he had been jailed for. A crooked businessman, that's all he'd been. But that's not how history remembers him. To history, he'll always be the Torture King. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. For more information on Charlie Richardson, amongst the many sources we used, we found Charlie's autobiography, My Manor, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Effie Antigone, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Murden. 